All right, well, if you guys would turn to the book of Hosea, chapters 2 and 3, and we're going to stand and read them tonight. Um, We stand to acknowledge the word of God, and so we're going to stand and read it before we get into it tonight. Hosea, chapter 2. Say to your brethren, my people, and to your sisters, mercy is shown. Bring charges against your mother. Bring charges, for she is not my wife nor am I her husband. Let her put away her harlotries from her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and expose her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. I will not have mercy on her children, for they are the children of harlotry, for their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has behaved shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers, who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up your way with thorns and wall her in, so that she cannot find her paths. She will chase her lovers, but not overtake them. Yes, she will seek them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then it was better for me than now. For she did not know that I gave her grain, new wine, and oil, and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Therefore, I will return and take away my grain in its time, and my new wine in its season, and will take back my wool and my linen, given to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall deliver her from my hand. I will also cause all her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, her Sabbaths, all her appointed feasts. And I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, of which she has said, These are my wages that my lovers have given me. So I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall eat them. I will punish her for the days of the Baals to which she burned incense. She decked herself with her earrings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but me she forgot, says the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness, and speak comfort to her. I will give her her vineyards from there, and the valley of Acre as a door of hope. She shall sing there, as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband, and no longer call me my master. For I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals, and they shall be remembered by their name no more. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air, and with the creeping things of the ground. Bow and sword of battle I will shatter from the earth to make them lie down safely. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. It shall come to pass in that day that I will answer, says the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. The earth shall answer with grain, with new wine, and with oil. They shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the earth, and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who are not my people, You are my people. And they shall say, You are my God. Then the Lord said to me, Go again. Love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel, who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. 
So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one and one half homers of barley. And I said to her, you shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So too will I be toward you. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. <clears throat> Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Um, thank you that, Lord, we can acknowledge you by coming to it tonight and seek you. God, I thank you for your heart for us and that you've brought each one of us here tonight through the traffic and the things of the day, God. We just cast them as your, at your feet tonight. And Lord, I pray that you would just reveal your word to us in our hearts and that you would provide, Lord, that manna from heaven that we truly need from you every day. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you may be seated. If you remember last week, we were in Hosea chapter 1, and we, we did a little bit of introduction going to the historical background of the book and where Israel was at this time. Um, there was the nation that was split into two parts, northern Israel and Judah, and Hosea was a prophet to, to Israel, and so primarily that's what we're going to read about tonight is what God is charging against Israel. We talked about last week how God had sent these prophets to Israel and how Hosea was one of those, and God had called these prophets to be living illustrations for God. For Hosea, God charged him to marry a prostitute. This was something that was difficult but it demonstrated God's heart towards his people who were unfaithful towards him. Uh, we also talked about last week how uh, Hosea had three kids, and they were all named with names that were directly um, related to Israel and their, their status. The first one was Jezreel, which meant God scatters. And Israel would be scattered into exile, and we noted that in 722, less than 50 years after this prophecy, um, was stated, uh, and then lo ruhama, which meant no mercy, and we, we talked about that, and the, the last child, lo ami, not my people, and so this book is, like we said, God is speaking directly to the nation through Hosea and his life, and so what we're going to read about tonight, there's a lot of it where you can you can take it as being spoken to Israel, but also being spoken to Gomer, Hosea's wife. Um, we read chapter 1 last week, and we went over that, but I thought it was fitting to address it again tonight, because as we found the end of chapter 2, uh, the verse is almost identical to the first verse. So let's go ahead and get into chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. It says, Bring charges against your mother. Bring charges, for she is not my wife, nor am I her husband. Let her put away her harlotries from her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and expose her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness and set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. So like I mentioned, this is both addressed to Israel and Gomer, and when it you see, it's, it's against, bring charges against the mother. Later, it'll bring up the children. When, in, in reference to Israel, 
when it says mother, it's talking about Israel as a whole, the nation as a whole. And when it speaks to the children, it's speaking to the individual Israelites. And so there's going to come some, some times in, as we read through this where, you know, we just got to keep that in the back of our head that, you know, this is who God is speaking to. But we can also take this as, um, you know, what God is speaking to us. And, and, you know, God is charging the nation here in verse 2 with that idolatry, and he's warning them. You know, he says, my marriage relationship with you, which is a huge theme of this book that we're going to explore, is broken to the point where, at this point, for she is not even my wife, nor am I her husband. And it was probably the same way with Gomer as well. We, we noted that the last child, who was named not my people, was probably not Hosea's son. Um, it's recorded elsewhere, or historical account, that you know Gomer had more kids than this. And so it was most definitely that you know, she went back and it, to the, her harlotries and adulteries. God gives them that chance here to deal with their sin. Otherwise, the consequences of exposing the sin would come. And we'll get into that, and we'll, we'll talk about that and what that means. But it's important to note that this is better than sin's natural consequences. Um, if God didn't do anything, the relationship would stay dead and have no hope for the future. And so even though there's consequences that will come, it's God's mercy that is administering those because they're ultimately for that hope for redemption. Uh, he says that he'll strip her naked and expose her as in the day she was born, uh, like, a, like a baby, like a helpless baby. You know, the, the sin will be exposed. Uh, you know, there'll be nothing for, for her to cling to from her idols. And in verse 4 and 5 it says, I will not have mercy on her children, for they are the children of harlotry. For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has behaved shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. These individuals that composed the nation, the, the children, were guilty of the sins of the nation. And so he's, he's charging them um, in, in verse 2 when he says to bring charges against your mother to come against the nation and and, you know, to plead with them to change, to plead with the, the leaders to change, but it's also an individual heart issue. It wasn't just the kings that were serving the idols, it was the people. In that time, it was a common thing, and we'll get into language later where uh, it's things that, that we don't naturally see today, but harlotry and prostitution was common in that time, and more common in, in the foreign lands, but Israel had adopted these practices. Israel had relationships with the surrounding nations, trade relationships to where they benefited in some way or another, but because they had these relationships, they also adopted these false gods from the other nations. The last king of, of Israel, whose name ironically is Hosea, in 2 Kings chapter 17, got to the point where uh, he had become he had brought the nation to become, the word is uh, Assyria's vassal, and so it was like they were a subordinate nation to Assyria. And I imagine it made it all the, all the much easier when Assyria came in and, and took them over. But they were yielding, and they were, they were putting their trust in these other nations. And last, last week, we, we saw that that was their downfall, putting their strength and their trust in anything other than God. The reason why Judah had been 
uh, given mercy in the last chapter was because their trust was in God. And so they went from putting, Israel went from putting their trust in themselves to now putting themselves in the surrounding nations and putting their trust in that. Her, per, her perception here was that her lovers were the ones that provided for her. We'll read a couple verses later that God really is the one who provided here. Um, but that false perception is very dangerous. Yeah, for us, you know, we, to be, we need to be wary of that idea that prov- our provision comes from anything other than God. Because then, you know, that's who we will serve. Uh, sin in itself gives a false perception that it satisfies. It gives the idea that, you know, you're, you're getting what you want, but it's only temporary. And so there's a natural application that comes from this where, you know, we ask ourselves, who are we trusting in to provide? Are we content with the way that God provides for us? Because sometimes he doesn't give us everything that we think that we want. Um, but he's so perfect in his timing to give us what we need. I just talked to somebody today who, him and his wife, have one car, and he was putting it before the Lord. Lord, you know, this is it's just difficult, you know. They have two, two young kids, and, and then all of a sudden, get a phone call. Somebody had a car that, that they were selling that somehow that fit in their price range. And, and God does that. At the perfect time, he provides what we need, and we don't always... It's not always easy for us, but it, it's, it's better than the temporary trust when we can put our trust in, in sin or in other things other than God. Those things fade away, and we have that confidence that, that God's always going to provide, and, uh, and in eternity, we're going to have everything that we ever need. In verses 6 and 7 and 8, it says, Therefore, behold, I'll hedge up your way with thorns and wall her in, so that she cannot find her paths. She will chase her lovers, but not overtake them. Yes, she will seek them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then it was better for me than now. For she did not know that I gave her grain, new wine, and oil, and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Uh, the therefore here is the connection to the, to the previous verse. God's response to them thinking that their provision came from false gods and, and from idols or from other nations, is that he's going he's gonna to put up these hedges of thorns. And if you think about it, it's, it's just that visual picture of walking down a path and there's thorns on either side. Um, the implication is that any way that they would go to go try to find these, these false gods would be painful. It would hurt. It would be uncomfortable. And sometimes God does this for us to, to, to make things and places that we aren't supposed to go difficult to get to. It's almost like, you know, when you have little kids and put the cookie jar way up high, you know, you, you don't want them to get to it and maybe they don't understand and maybe they don't like it, but that discipline is, is important. These political alliances that they had seemed very good, but it led them astray. But there's a beautiful picture here that, you know, whoever belongs to God or who has belonged to God, this is why we have so much hope that for, for prodigals is, is that God never lets them go. He, he sets up a path here where they can't, they literally can't get back to their idols. And eventually they'll realize, and, and like it says in verse 7, 
that they will say, oh, it was better for me to be with God than the way it is now. That satisfaction in sin, uh, once, you, once you leave God, goes away. And, and sin, you know, loses the appeal. But there's a problem. The problem was that even though it, was, it says in verse 7 and 8 that they will come back to God, they still didn't realize that God had provided for them, even in the midst of while they were unfaithful. For us, you know, we recognize, we recognize where our provision comes from. We're able to be thankful for that. We're able to thank God, and, and that's so important because it reminds us of our need for Him and our dependency for Him, and it ultimately removes the selfishness that can creep in, the need for self. They took what, what God had provided here in verse 8, and they gave it to idols. And I, you know, I think we, we must do that sometimes, take what God has given us and use it, use it for the wrong purpose. But here they directly used it for you know, replacing God. And I just think you know, how much that must have, must have hurt and affected the heart of God. But God's still you know, so loving and faithful to them. And you know, his, inten- his intention for marriage here um, is kind of revealed that it's, it's a love relationship. His relationship that he wanted with Israel was based off of love and not, not works, even while they were still unfaithful. He still provided for them. There's an idea here that, that possibly, you know, this was, this was something that Hosea did as well with Gomer. It could have been that she was, you know, sleep, sleeping with another guy at his house and Hosea came and brought some money for food or something. And you can imagine that circumstance. They must have thought of him as, as such a fool. But he was just pouring out his love as God had called him to. Uh, this, this term, which they had prepared for Baal, Baal was uh, the false god that they worshipped during that time, took different forms and names, but this was the primary, the primary one. We read that there was other ones that came from other nations. Um, but this is... We, we read of this one more than any other in the Bible. Uh, verse 9, it says, Therefore I will return and take away my grain in its time and my new wine in its season and will take back my wool and my linen given to cover her nakedness. All these things here are listed with the word my in front of them. These were God's and he took them and he chose to give them to his people. He could choose not to, and at this point, he's choosing to take them back. We read in the book of Ruth uh, a few weeks ago on Sundays about how God, there was a famine in the land because the people were disobedient. And in Deuteronomy chapter 11, it speaks just of that, that when the people were obedient, there would be rain and the land would be plentiful and fruitful, but that there would come a point when they were disobedient where, where God would take it away. It says that, now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall deliver her from my hand. There's this picture here, we see it in the few verses before, of that nakedness being exposed. Uh, this was probably used because it's the issue of adultery. Um, but there's, you can also take it as a picture of 
the comfort and the provision that God provided was kind of like it was kind of like clothes. You know, it it was comforting, it was covering. But when it was taken away, the sin would be exposed and it says here that their lovers uh, it would be uncovered in the sight of her lovers. And so the the surrounding nations would come to the point where they would realize they would, uh, Israel would become unappealing to them. Their wickedness would be exposed to all. He says that he will also cause all their mirth to cease. Her feast days, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. So he's, he's making it so that sin is so uncomfortable and so distasteful that naturally the desire for it, the appeal of it, will fade away. He takes away the joy, the mirth from it. He would take their pleasure from sin, and he wouldn't allow them to continue and participate in these things. The, the feast days, the new moons, and the Sabbaths were all religious activities. And so he wouldn't let them continue being a, a spiritual hypocrite and living apart from God while, while acting like they were. We know uh, what God thinks about lukewarmness in, in the book of, of Revelation. He says in Revelation 3.15, I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. You may be rich and white garments. You may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. So what God thinks about lukewarmness is (laughs) he wants to get rid of it. And he would rather them be hot or cold. And so really this is, this is what God desires, you know, the, the least. And part of that is because in that state of spiritual lukewarmness and, and not and being in the, trying to be in the middle and not being fully sold out to God, there's a danger of leading others astray. And that's something that God touches on in, in the Bible multiple times. But here, for his people, he's making it so that there's no pleasure in any sin at all. Continuing on, he says, And I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, of which she has said, These are my wages that my lovers have given me. So I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall eat them. I will punish her for the days of the balls to which she burned incense. She decked herself with her earrings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but me she forgot, says the Lord. Here, again, the profit now of sin would be destroyed, these vines and fig trees that were given by the lovers. So God's slowly stripping away every element of the sin that's appealing. It says that the specific reason why God is going to punish them is because they went and served these false gods and in this appealing tire, which for the day was uh, those earrings and jewelry and, and burning incense so they smelled good. Uh, you know, they didn't take as many baths in those days like Paul mentioned on Sunday. And so they, they had this incense to smell good. And so the punishment isn't just for them being unfaithful, but 
how it says in verse 13, 13, but they forgot God. For someone who is who's in a relationship, a marriage relationship with God, to the point of forgiving them, this is language that is used multiple points in the Bible. The, the word forget to, to really be indicative of this spiritual harlot. Last night at our home fellowship, we were at Proverbs chapter 2, and it says this, to deliver you from the immoral woman, from the seductress who flatters with her words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. In a minute, we're going to mention something from the Song of Moses in Exodus. And in that same passage, the same language is, is used in describing that they forgot the covenant with their God. This is, is something where... I, I read in a commentary that this could be the greatest sin, forgetting God, but it's something that we may not consider, but I'm sure we do it often. And whether it's in little things or, or completely, it's, it's, not, it's, it's something that is so distasteful to think about, to think about hurting the, the God who has saved us, who has brought us through so much, and is now in a point where he has promised us all these things and, and forgetting him, that's something that really strikes my heart to sit on and, and ponder and be repentful over. And so he's, he's pleading to them to do this. And in response to them forgetting him, he responds with mercy. Verse 14, Therefore, behold, I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. I will give her her vineyards from there in the valley of Acre as a door of hope. She shall, shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. So God's response, bring him back. There's a picture here uh, of the Exodus. It mentions the land of Egypt. And just like that, they, there was judgment that was came. They were brought into the wilderness they were redeemed, and, and there's hope for the future. That song of Moses that I mentioned earlier is in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 13 through 18, and that's probably what the reference is here when it says that she shall sing there, as in the days of her youth. The valley of Acre here uh, is direct reference to Joshua chapter 7, the sin of Achan. Uh, won't go into that, but the word acre literally, mean, literally means trouble. So you can kind of take the interpretation from there, taking the valley of trouble into a door of hope. And it's just like how in chapter 1, God's going to do the same thing with Jezreel, the valley of Jezreel, and, and with these children. God's in the business of redeeming. And some of, these, some of these names and these things that used to mean trouble, used to be a, you know, this place used to be a sign of judgment, God uses as a sign of hope, as a, as a testimony. That's something we, we can take away from this tonight, that these names that God gave those children that seemed so, it seemed so harsh eventually became a sign of God's restoration and God's hope. Each one of us have things in our lives and, and, and darkness and sin in our past that we may be ashamed to bring up, but ultimately now, God has freed us from those things. 
So we have the ability to, to, in sharing them, to have it be a testimony of the power of God. God promises in verse 16, It shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me master. For I will take by her, from her mouth the names of the Baals, and they shall be remembered by their name no more. That day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air, and with the creeping things of the ground. Bow and sword of battle I will shatter from the earth to make them lie down safely. The term master here in the Hebrew, you may have a footnote in your Bible, it says the word is Baali. And, and it's directly the same word as the, these false gods that they worshipped. And so God's saying, I don't want that relationship. I don't want a slave-master relationship. I want a relationship to husband to you. God really wants his relationships with his people to be built off of love, not works or service. And we see that God's going to restore peace, and he's, he's going to take away even the remembrance of the idols. When it says, in that day, in verse 16, it's speaking of uh, the millennial reign. And we know that these prophecies that we've been reading and that we're going to continue reading are not fulfilled yet because uh, not all of it is completely fulfilled. There's some of the things that, that we may say, oh, maybe this is happening today. You know, Israel has been restored as a nation. But these things are speaking of when the Lord comes again and when he's reigning and ruling over the earth. That's when, in verse 18, you know, these beasts and these animals will have peace the bow and the sword of battle will be shattered from the earth. We talked about that last week in verse chap- in chapter 1, verse 7, about the bow, these weapons are going to be useless. God's going to create peace, and there's going to be no more war. There's going to be no more strife. And even the, as Isaiah chapter 11 says, the, you know, the lion and the lamb will be able to, to lie down together in peace. As God had, had created at the beginning, Israel had actually taken, uh, Israel, or God had taken Israel out of this state of master-slave relationship back in Egypt. And he brought them into his land, into his covenant. And even though that had happened, it's almost like God has created a plan for that to happen again and for that to be the hope for the future, to have that illustration. God really wants that relationship with the church as well to be the husband-wife relationship and for us individually. We know that husbands and wives, when they are focused and and loving onto each other, then the natural desire for for selfishness just melts away because you're so in love and, and you're caring for the other person and caring for their needs. And then they do the same for you. And that's God's that's God's perfect picture for marriage. We'll continue to see it throughout the book and right here again in the following verses 19 and 20 where he says, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. He says in these six lines, the same little phrase three times, 
I will betroth you to me. The beautiful thing there is that it's God doing it. It's God doing the work, and the relationship is then based off of his attributes, his righteousness, his justice, his loving kindness, his mercy, and his faithfulness, all of which, especially the faithfulness in this example, are, are way greater than ours. God wanted to, to restore them permanently. As the relationship at this point was temporarily broken, he promises in the future it's going to be cemented and it's going to be perfect forever. Verses 21 through the end of the chapter. Shall come to pass in that day that I will answer, says the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. The earth shall answer with grain, with new wine and with oil. They shall answer Jezreel and I will sow her for myself in the earth. And I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they shall say, you are my God. God's going to use, and he's, he's going to use the earth to bring back these blessings that he had previously taken away that we read about. Romans uh, chapter 9, verse 25, we mentioned it last week, directly quotes verse 23 here, uh, where it says, that those who are not my people, you are my people. And in Romans, it talks about how that is also a reference to the Gentiles. And so that's for us. The promise is for us, us who are not God's people. Now we're God's people. These names, again, are restored. And it's that reminder that God has given us those testimonies. And it's not... It's not just for us, it's for us to share. The word is a testimony of who God is to us, yet he works in our life intricately, not just for us and for our growth, but so that we can share it with others. Chapter 3, verse 1 is almost a repeat of chapter 1, verse 2. God says, And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover, and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel, who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. Gomer had left Hosea again, and so God's saying, go, love her again. He was instructed to get her back, which inevitably was harder than the first time, even though he knew that she was going to be a harlot or that she already was a harlot. He had to go love someone who is unlovable. And it's a good picture for us because God does that all the time. And it's a little bit maybe easier for us to think of a, a person doing it. But nevertheless, Hosea went and did it. We'll read about that. Uh, these raisin cakes it talks about were something that were used in ritual sacrifices to idols by the foreign nations. And so it's just talking about a part of the idol worship that they were doing. Like I said, almost the same as chapter 1, verse 2. But it, it comes to this point where it's a little bit different. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one and one half homers of barley. It's thought perhaps that maybe Gomer was at the slave market. It's not 100% sure. We don't have any any proof of that, but it would kind of make sense for this, this price to be paid. And 
this price was, was the price for about half a slave. So it wasn't even, it wasn't even that much, but she, she wasn't worth it, and we sure weren't worth the price that, that God paid for us. This idea of redemption, I'm sure, is, is what God intended to be, to be a picture of the salvation that God has provided for us and by redeeming us, by buying us back. Even though we, you know, in this case, she had run away from God, and he went and got her back again. And this next verse is the one line that we get from Hosea in the book. And I said to her, you shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So too will I be towards you. She was to be faithful to him as he was to her. Talking, when it talks about that she will not have a man, it doesn't mean that there will be no intimacy in the relationship. The fact that God had called him to love her implied that, that that was to be a part of their relationship, but she wasn't to go seek and play the harlot anymore. And she was to remain with him for many days. This isn't... This isn't something that's, that's finite, it's, it's a permanent thing. Just like how God had, had mentioned that he would restore the, is, the relationship with Israel forever. These next two verses, which they're in one of the, this is one of the shorter chapters of the Bible, I'm sure it's probably top ten, um, are very important prophetical verses. They're very, they're, they're small, they're short, but it's very important when we read these, to think about prophecy and what has yet to be fulfilled. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. So let's run through this list. King or prince, they don't have that today, and they will have one when when Jesus comes back to rule and reign. They don't currently have a sacrifice uh, they're, I believe, I'm not too knowledgeable about this stuff, but I believe they're, in the, the, they're trying to get to that point where they restore sacrifices, but it hasn't happened yet. And they would have no sacred pillar, uh, no ephod or teraphim. Uh, God made it so they wouldn't have anything to worship other than God. The ephod was a sacred garment which was worn by the high priest, and the, the word teraphim were these small objects or images that they worshipped. There's a reference in Genesis uh, when Rachel steals the household idol. That is the word teraphim that's spoken of here. But the key part is that they will abide many days. There's no specific here, which is actually the part that we're going to talk about because it's it's important. They're going to go into this captivity but God doesn't specify when they're going to come out. In the previous, in, in this will be the, the third captivity that, that occurs, but in the previous ones, God had specified the exact amount of time that they would be in it until they came out. The first one was the Egyptian captivity, which God had told Abraham would be 430 years. Next was the, the Babylonian captivity, which God had said would be 70 years. And that was for Judah, when when Judah returned to the land, but the nation, the northern part, Israel, never actually returned to the land. So when it's speaking of 
many days, it's not specified because it's the return of the Lord. It's not something that we have a specific measure for. We don't know the day or the hour. It's going to be as a thief in the night when he comes back. And so that's why it's important that it's list that it's that is not listed. And it's, it's another indicator for us here that, that these are the things that, that are to come to pass in the day of the Lord when the Lord returns to rule and reign. Verse 5, Afterward the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Israel also right now has not returned to God. They... Uh, there's questions by some people about what the nation of of Israel is doing now or or the the fact that they're in wars and stuff, but we know that, for one, the nation as a whole isn't serving God and fearing God. But it says to come that they will in the latter days. So there's a lot of indication here that these are the things that are yet to come, but they're, they're hope for the future. There's a focus in this chapter about how the judgment is to come and the, and the way that God administers the, ju- the judgment is in such a graceful yet intentional way. And he does that same thing for us in our lives. He eliminates paths of sin. He intentionally does things so that we can't pursue our, our, our flesh in, in certain ways. And, and it's, it's not in... A, in a selfish way to God, but it's a, it's a protective. He knows the real consequences of sin are death and, and eternal death. And so he, he puts out his hand and he works so, so gracefully and, and gently to bring us back. We know that God's heart is always for salvation here. And we don't know when he's going to come back. It could be any day. But the the charge here to his people are to come back and to love him. And we know that he wants and desires that love relationship. And I think all of us here know that when we're loving the Lord, it's so much easier. It's so much easier to spend time with him, to worship him, to be in the word. Uh, Life usually just goes a whole lot better because we have peace from God. So if there's any exhortation tonight, maybe maybe it's that. Love the Lord. Seek Him. Uh, I think there's a challenge in here to take that testimony that God's given us and, and share it with somebody. We all have friends and people that we know that, that are unbelievers. God is so good and we see His heart revealed. Chapters 1 through 3 are, are almost an introduction to the book. So we're through that now. Next week we'll be in 4 and 5 and we'll get to see more of, of what God has to say beautiful thing is that it's God that is saying it and we have his word and we get to see really his heart for us and for his people let's pray Lord we thank you for your word God I thank you for a book like this where it's you directly speaking Lord there's some things that are hard to understand but there's other things that are so clear cut God where it's just just amazing how much you love us God how much even in the midst of unfaithfulness you go out of your way to pour out your love and your grace. God, would you teach us how to fall more in love with you each and every day? We submit our hearts to you, God, and we pray that you would help us to 
remember you, God, and to not forget you. Lord, help us in those moments where we are weak just to lay our trust and lay our burdens on you. Pray for these kids tonight, and I want to, God, that you would grow your word in their hearts and grow in them a love for you. Lord, we do love you, and we desire to love you more and more. Thank you for your gracious arm that is always surrounding us. In Jesus' name, amen.